I'm Maud Garrett, and welcome to the latest episode of the Millions Podcast by Harrison AI, the medtech company with a vision to build a world where people are cared for by people. Medical data analysis is done at scale, autonomously using AI, and anyone can get the right care at the right time. Now, I am sad to say that this is the sixth and final episode of our first season, but we are saying goodbye for now with a fascinating conversation. Our host, Mark Pesci, sits down with Makiko Baisley, content creator, developer advocate, and head of ML Ops at FeatureForm, the open source virtual feature store. As you'll hear throughout this chat, Makiko is a very passionate individual, especially when she's talking about the area of machine learning operations and its potential to move the world forward. As a former bodybuilder, she also has a specific interest in health, the healthcare sector, and figuring out ways to use machine learning to improve health outcomes. So without further ado, let's hand over the mic to Mark Pesci to discover more about the integral role humanity has to play in the future of ML and AI technology. Over to you, Mark. At the essence of every operation with artificial intelligence, is training. And training is really shorthand for running a model over and over and over and over again and adjusting the inputs and the outputs so that they come closer and closer to the outputs that you're looking for. And so when people complain about bias in AI, you need look no further than this. Training is a form of bias. It's putting your thumb on the scales. And that's okay as long as you're aware of it and accept that training is never a one and done. Training is a process and you need to build it into the whole process. Constantly looking to improve training as users expose its weaknesses, its biases, and its strengths. You can learn as much training a model as you do from using a model, perhaps even more. And someone who knows an awful lot about this is our next guest on Millions. Makiko Baisley is the head of machine learning operations at Freeform. Makiko, welcome to Millions. Hi, it's so nice to meet you finally. You too. So I want to start with some of your history. And you wrote this wonderful sort of summation of how you got to where you are. You said, before I started working on production machine learning as an ML ops engineer, I was a struggling data scientist. And before I was a struggling data scientist, I was an overwhelmed analyst. And even before that, I was a completely confused and lost growth hacker. All right. You want to unroll that for us? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. And what I like to tell people is uh, I have experience in honestly working the full value chain of data, data science, machine learning. So I think. You know, I love that quote you mentioned about technology as anything that has been created after you were born, because I think for me personally, I see data science and machine learning and, and data in general as being very punk in some ways, especially when you combine it with open source. So my mom is um, a first-generation immigrant. She immigrated here from Japan, a uh, very young age. She met my father in New York, and then they eventually moved out to San Francisco. Um, I think for me, you know, part of, we joke about how there's this like holy trinity of like jobs or careers for uh, second generation Americans, which is doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so, you know, you know, when I was much younger, I had always had this dream of, you know, being captivated by the doctor without borders of helping people. So of course, you know, combine that with the immigrant, you know, child dream of uh, making a lot of money and supporting my parents, I decided, well, I'm going to go 
to, uh, you know, UC San Diego. I'm going to enroll in biomedical engineering. I'm going to become a biomedical engineer and go to med school. And then I'm going to like, you know, help people. And, uh, you know, needless to say that did not happen. Uh, I basically nearly ended up dropping out of college several times because I was just under this immense pressure to be like the perfect, uh, you know, model of, uh, you know, an immigrant child. And I ended up graduating in anthropology and economics, but, uh, as well as public health. But to me, that kind of inspired a deep awareness and uh, learning and curiosity about people, how people make decisions, how they interact with technology in the world. And when I graduated college, you know, that's kind of been the constant theme throughout my career is curiosity is trying to figure out what's the next, um, what's next breakthrough, what's next barrier, but specifically how we take technology and how do we um, democratize access to it. And I think data is one of those places where you see that so very, very clearly. Um, yeah. So, you know, honestly, like I tell people in my career is it, it was working up and down the data value chain, but part of it was also, it was uh, a lot of it was just so accidental. You know, it was a lot of like when I graduated college, I couldn't find a job, you know? So of course I go work at a startup and get a job uh, managing their, their growth and sales operations and of course, that startup pivoted and nearly failed. So I said, hey, what's the next thing that I can work on that I can apply my skills? And for a lot of folks, they're like, you know, you're just technical enough to kind of combine that with business domain knowledge and the willingness to pick stuff up very quickly. And that's kind of been the theme. And that's eventually how it led me to doing the work in machine learning operations. I mean, you talk about this because you have had these successive careers, but you really talk about them as almost adding another layer, like being able to level up. You're like, oh, I've got the skills to be able to to make that jump just barely, but just enough to be able to do that. So what w- advice would you give people who are you know, maybe starting out or maybe on that ladder? What, did, what, what advice would you give them about how they can prepare themselves to make that next jump? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 very that question is so interesting because I feel like, especially a lot of people who are maybe just getting into data or data science and machine learning, or even people who are very experienced practitioners, they're all feeling a little bit of the pressure, especially with a lot of the advancements in large language models, in generative AI. Uh, I know I had a few moments myself where I was wondering, does, does the work I do even matter anymore? Does Does it matter to talk about best practices and the skills and technology needed to support machine learning models and machine learning products, uh, if so much of that has been automated away. And, you know, what I would say is, number one, like, it never hurts to learn the the fundamentals, you know. So, and especially for a lot of data work, um, it, even for generative models, having a, a deep awareness of what it means to work with data, of the problems that can come with data, especially in environments like um, healthcare, in um, the financial services industry, in banking, a lot of these things are just are are not um, they're not trivial. And so, I would say number one is it never hurts to learn the fundamentals. And I would say the second part is um, being very I don't want to say skeptical but not taking things at face value, especially with so much of the language around 
a lot of the recent advancements in machine learning, because that's something that I feel very passionate about is that on the one hand, there's so much, so I'm based in San Francisco, the Bay Area, right? Which for a lot of people is, is really kind of the heart of a lot of, these advance, a lot of these advances. On the one hand, it could seem like everyone is constantly working on cutting edge everything. On the other hand, a lot of that access is, is not democratized. It is in fact very um, concentrated. But it's it's hard to like, you know, it's it's hard to see that, especially in in, in the language in uh, social media and all that. It's it's hard to remember that sometimes. And you you point out the importance of fundamentals, and I think particularly if you're working in ML ops, when something breaks, if you don't understand the fundamentals, trying to fix it is much harder because you don't know where to look for what might be going wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of my work. Uh, is centered around, um, for one thing, helping people design their machine learning platforms. I mean, I mean there's, a, there's the tooling aspect of the technical implementation, but there's also helping them understand what are their particular um, or organizational requirements, what are the workflows that they need to support, and how do they, like, how do they match their needs with the technology solutions that are out there. As part of that work, I work with, people from, you know, very early stage startups to even like enterprise companies in fairly conservative industries like banking, for example, in financial services. And something that really kind of stuck out to me was this concept of defensibility and around your product or services, which is specifically, if everyone has access to the same large language models, then where is the defensibility? Where is the uh, value add? Where is the unique, unique value proposition? And I think what it comes down to is, for example, when we're talking about an awareness of fundamentals, it's not just, for example, how do you collect data? How do you store it? How do you structure it? But it's also, how do you um, enrich your data products through interactions of your users with your service? So, for example, in my career, um, I worked as a data scientist at Teldoc. We regularly worked with um, individuals with chronic conditions like hypertension, blood pressure, um, diabetes, uh, you name it. And are, can we use, can we use many of the large language models out there to like run our patient data through it? No, absolutely not. And more importantly, part of our offering was if one of our users or one of our patients who, you know, has, is living with type two diabetes, let's say for example, they have a sugar, sugar spike. Um, one of the services we offered was a coach would, would reach a coach or nurse would reach out to them and check in to make sure that they were okay, if they needed additional assistance. Um, that's something where, number one, unlike email marking spam, if an email, like, if spam gets marked as not spam or, you know, gets marked as spam, whether it's false positive, false negative, the risk there is very, very low. But if you're dealing in a healthcare situation, and for example, you're specifically offering a service that says, hey, we're going to take care of you in your, you know, time of vulnerability, we need to have guardrails around that. So we need to be able to monitor our models to make sure that, uh, number one, they're not flagging um, false negatives. So if someone is truly in need of help, like we are identifying it. Um, and then second part, we also need to make sure we're not exposing patient data, but we still need to find ways to um, help guide the users in, for example, Teldoc's case, to uh, healthier outcomes. So we want to do it in a way that enriches the users uh, and the patients 
experience. And there, there's a lot of things about that where it's like being aware of data, being aware of products and how you design products and, and user interfaces. A lot of that is not going to get abstracted away by generative AI models or, or large language models. And none of that is really what we normally think of when we try to narrow, narrowly define what machine learning or artificial intelligence or data science is. And you, know, you talked about your background and you've described it as ethnography. That's a, a, an idea and also a practice that's very close to my own heart. I, I've been described as a digital ethnographer in the past. That sounds like a very fancy term, but really what it is is going out and seeing how people work, right? Understanding that and then bringing that to them in ways that is useful to them, right? It's not complicated, but it is frequently overlooked. Now, let's broaden this out. So you're with a firm called FeatureForm that offers a store to make all of this easy for people who are working in this area. Can you t take us through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, the story of our category, which is a, a feature store, almost kind of mirrors the story of um, MLOps and the maturity of MLOps. So, uh, I would say most practitioners, uh, data scientists, machine learning engineers in our area, uh, we unofficially kind of mark the beginning of uh, machine learning operations as 2015. It was the year that the first of um, a couple of very famous papers in the space were published. The title is something along the lines of the high interest card card debt of machine learning, but everyone can recognize there's iconic image that has just been used in every single presentation that has come after that paper. And essentially it talks about how there is all this infrastructure that is needed to support machine learning. Now, between 2013, 2015 to 2017, 2018, there were a number of advances that were happening, both in terms of maturity of, um, of frameworks used for uh, training models, as well as maturity in terms of the uh, technical kind of requirements to look at them. So example, uh, companies like Uber, companies like Google, uh, Facebook, that original paper was published by a team at Google. They, especially like companies like Uber, for example, Uber, Lyft, uh, Twitter, Facebook, they were dealing with incredibly large scale data computation, data storage, data serving problems at a time when companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft didn't even have, either didn't have offerings to meet those requirements or those offerings were incredibly expensive. Yeah. So that was like the first wave. The set of technology solutions or categories to me, we think of as machine learning operations tools. And a lot of these, they were solving like very, very specific problems in like very specific ways with this idea of we're doing this to kind of support um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users. So that was kind of the first wave. So while Makiko is talking us through the origins of machine learning operations and how technology solutions have evolved to solve very specific problems on a large scale, this is a good point to mention that Harrison AI is using artificial intelligence to drive genuine breakthroughs in the global healthcare system. With the chronic shortage of radiologists around the world, Harrison is on a mission to urgently scale global healthcare capacity using AI automation to elevate the care clinicians can provide. Across a range of solutions in radiology and beyond, the ultimate goal is to improve the standard of care for a million lives per day. And not decades away in the way distant future, but by 2025. 
If you're interested in learning more, you can follow Harrison AI on LinkedIn. Anyway, back to Mikiko unpacking what exactly feature stores are. What exactly are feature stores? For example, the company I represent, FeatureForm. So in the machine learning process, uh, there's a couple different stages. So the first stage is collecting data and analyzing it and essentially kind of applying sort of both scientific methodologies, but also more like detective and sleuthing sort of strategies to understand like what potential insights you could have within the data. The second stage is once you take that data, you then want to create what are called features. And features are inputs that are used to train machine learning models. Once you've trained your machine learning models, then you want to deploy and productionize, and then you want to operationalize them. Why do we focus on features? So feature engineering, uh, which is the process of creating these inputs for machine learning models, is a very, very fascinating space because for one, it is incredibly hard to automate. So um, folks might be aware of like AutoML. That was a, a big trend or a big hype a few years ago. So when you create these features, you try out different machine learning algorithms to like create a model. And a model is some combination of the algorithm of the the data and essentially is like these trained uh, weights off of the data. So a, lo- a lot of the areas of the machine learning lifecycle have been solved or they have reasonable enough solutions. Feature engineering is very, very difficult. It's the stage that kind of represents the art and science of data science. Because on the one hand, um, you could, for example, use an AutoML an auto ML solution to, you know, automate and generate hundreds of features. But there are challenges with that because the whole entire goal of a machine learning model is you're trying to predict events in the future given uh, data that ideally you would only have at the time that you predict or that you perform inference. Secondly, it's also because a lot of times when you're going into the data set, you actually don't know what combination of features is really going to work. And then the other part that is really important about feature engineering is it requires a certain mix of domain experience. If you're in banking, for example, uh, you have to understand like what what is annualized recurring revenue. You have to understand what that means. You have to understand how it's measured. E-commerce, for example, understanding click-through rates and conversion, or if you're in marketing. So it's this weird kind of intersection of both like data, of business domain, of the domain knowledge of the problem that you're working with, and also an understanding and awareness of the algorithms itself, what features will work with what models. It's a very, very like hard area. And that's the area that FeatureForm is directly trying to help solve for for data scientists. So does that mean then that Really, when we're talking about features, we're talking about fintech features, we're talking about medical features, we're talking about marketing features, right? Because each of them are so a product of the domain where they're being applied that although there are some similarities across all of them, the differences are really where the value of expertise and depth knowledge from the individual contributes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from our perspective, almost anything can be a feature into a machine learning model. Some of the most, uh, you know, famous like products out there, for for example, uh, Spotify or um, 
you know, even Amazon, uh, they will have hundreds of models running. At any given time, if you log into your Spotify account, they could have anywhere from, you know, five to a hundred models running in the in the background. And sometimes they can even like do things like chaining models too in like a multi-model or multi-modal um, ensemble kind of pipeline situation. And so from our perspective, like almost anything can be a feature. So embedding, for example, is a numeric representation of a highly like dense or complex uh, object. Like how would you represent an image or a video or a sound? And so for us, like embeddings can also be features. Um, in a lot of banking or forecasting situations, sometimes the feature is just uh, a numeric value at specific points in time, or it's it's that case too with like IoT data, for example, or signal data, uh, signal based data. So from our perspective, the feature is any kind of input that could be used in a model, such that you would uh, train the model to eventually then uh, predict something in the future. Now, when we talk about what happens with the store and how FeatureForm works. Are you providing additional data infrastructure here so that people can get the data into their models? Or is it really that you're defining a new workflow for people that are working with that data? Or is it is it both? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's actually a little bit of both. So the original V1 tools of our category were, they, they truly were kind of like feature stores. So they're a place where essentially once a data scientist, uh, for example, define the features for their models, uh, they could either store they could store the definitions and the values. A lot of times also they were offered that computation and orchestration aspect as well. I think what we've run into though is that there are so many different ways you can do machine learning. And do machine learning well. There's no one architecture or one predominant pattern that is used by all companies. Um, every company has like a, a different set of requirements. And so for us, we're closer to more what you would think of as a virtual platform. Mm -hmm. And specifically, so what are the problems that like a virtual feature store solves? Uh, the four key problems are uh, one, um, collaboration actually is a big one. Collaboration is the most important one. So we're essentially assuming that features are, because they're such a, a critical input and because feature engineering is such a critical sort of bottleneck within the machine learning lifecycle, and also because they require a certain amount of domain expertise, um, we make the assumption that data scientists uh, are working with their prog managers. They're working even with legal sometimes. Legal is is actually legal teams can be the unsung or the uh, <laughs> unknown players within machine learning initiatives. The second problem we're trying to solve is versioning. So a lot of times. You want to you want to understand the impact of your features on your models, because, for example, a thing that a lot of data scientists and machine learning engineers think about is data drift or even like uh, target leakage. When you have information about your target or about the outcome that gets leaked into a training set, and what the impact of that is is when you try to put that model into production, you'll see it does really really well in experimental you know, setting, you evaluate, you're like, okay, this is great. This is going to be a fantastic. You put that model in production and then it fails really horribly. It's like, well, why did it fail? It's because it had essentially learned the patterns because it had access to the label. And then now you expose it into a production setting where obviously it no longer has access. It can't predict how many writers are going to want a taxi. 
in like say the 30 minutes, but in training, you had to actually expose that number. So essentially it's, it's wasted resources. It's kind of like pull it back to like, what's one of the um, second kind of outcomes you want to achieve with feature stores or feature platforms. It is like versioning features, it's tracking them. Tracking and lineage is a huge aspect of uh, governance and regulation. Mm-hmm. For companies that maybe are rolling out GDPR for the first time, they have to go identify like which models are using uh, which PII, and then we need to like remove those. So that's a big aspect of it as well. Now, just to make sure everyone's following along with all those acronyms happening here, Makiko is getting into the data protection side of things. So GDPR is General Data Protection Regulation, a regulation on data protection and privacy. PII is personal identifying information. So any data that can be used to identify someone from their name, address and phone number to passport information and even social security numbers. All right, back to Makiko to unpack the fourth problem a virtual feature store can solve. And then the fourth part is making it easier to create transformations and to serve them. And we do that through the through the virtual abstraction. We do that through essentially saying, hey, we're going to make it really easy for companies and teams to use the infrastructure services that they need. And so we are just going to like integrate with those services. We're going to, you can plug and play, swap out your stuff. And that's essentially how we, we try to help data science platform engineers. It's focusing on, like you said, that workflow level as opposed to the infrastructure level. And you've written that the field of MLOps needs less tools and more abstractions. What does that mean in practice, particularly given with the amount of research that's going on in machine learning right now, there are more and more potential models and abstractions being created all of the time? And how can people who are working in the field stay across those models so that they're always using the one that's best for them? I think it it, it, it would help for me to describe that a statement even further. So what do I mean by abstractions? And what is a good abstraction? A good abstraction is, first off, takes into account the users that are using the abstraction. Uh, it focuses squarely on solving the, the problems for those users. And it abstracts away much of the underlying complexity. The same way, for example, when we drive our cars, We don't necessarily need to keep an eye out on every single aspect of the car as we're operating it. We kind of just need to know a few things. For example, we need to know how fast it's going. We need to know what direction it's going in. And we need to make sure we're not running out of gas. The cars are incredibly useful. And in fact, they're more useful because we essentially have a simplified interface uh, than they would be if we were to be exposed to all the underlying um, tools and components that compose a car. And I think that is, if you look at, for example, the success of ChatGBT, why was it actually successful? It wasn't because it had made significant improvements on top of ChatGPT 3. I mean, there, there, were, there were improvements, but it was largely because essentially OpenAI had created a, a user interface that where people who didn't have the technical experience to kind of create their own GUIs could now interact with GPT. And I think that's what I mean by we need more abstractions and not tools. 
because I've, I've had conversations with thought leaders and, and influencers in the space where they say, hey, you know, we just don't have the right tool to solve the right problem. And I just, after seeing Matt Turk, who is a pretty well-known American VC, um, for one thing, because of his memes, they're fantastic, but also because he uh, every year publishes the mad landscape uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and data science tools. And he publishes on the ecosystem of tools. And that landscape has exploded until now the icons are like little pixels on the PDF. Makiko is absolutely right. Matt Turk is very much a thought leader when it comes to everything data, ML and AI. And if you're an Avid Millions listener, you may already be familiar with his annual machine learning, AI and data landscape study. If not, definitely check it out. And if you're a Twitter user, give him a follow. I mean, for the memes, but so much more. So one of the most attractive aspects when I look at it, uh, feature form, is that it's open source. And I have a background in open source because I'm 30 years ago, I'm one of the folks who helped bring you the web. And we made sure that all of that work was open source work. And so I am very happy to see this. But what does it mean for the team at FeatureForm to be contributing to and participating deeply in an open source ecosystem, particularly when there's a lot of work there which is closed source, which isn't available for commercial reasons? I think whether a company open sources their their, their product, I think it is always like a little bit of a personal decision for the founders. Uh, for us, we see a lot of benefits. Um, you know, the the first benefit is prog feedback. So rather than us trying to hide our, our product and close source it, instead people can get up and up and close with it. They can evaluate it. They can see the good and the bad. Uh, and we get more immediate product feedback that way and we're able to improve the, the product. The second part also is recognizing that everyone is uh, different companies and teams are at different kind of places in their maturity. So we don't necessarily want to do the thing where we say, hey, you know, we're developing this really cool thing. And oh, by the way, you can't have access to it. Mm. Um, instead, what we're saying is, hey, you know, these are kind of the different entry points, depending on sort of what you, do you need a managed solution? Like, for example, is governance and user access really important to you? For a lot of companies that have those concerns, they are big enough to where, you know, they they probably need a bunch of different things from us. So, for example, they probably not just need implementation help, but maybe they also need more of a solutions perspective. Mm. Our goal isn't to sell and implement feature form into like everyone's tool chain, regardless of whether or not they actually need it. We want to be like a great partner and we want to be a value add. Do you see, because you have open source and because you have customers who are using this, do you see customers then, you know, pulling the source code repository, adding something or improving or fixing something and then giving it back? Do you- yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's always delightful when we get a notification um, that, hey, this new person has joined uh, your Slack community or, hey, this person has uh, identified a bug and they've created a PR. Um, that is like quite delightful whenever that happens. Having an open core model allows us to um, create a very high value, high quality product that we can share with the community, especially with machine learning practitioners, but also at the same time, ensure that we have the uh, investments and funds to keep like working and keep pushing on the product. Does this mean then that MLOps combined with an open source approach has a real potential 
to advance the field in useful, interesting ways. I mean, have you seen examples in your own career where this happens? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, Scikit-Learn, TensorFlow, PyTorch, uh, Pandas, all these, you know, all these projects. It was, it was very fascinating. I was at a conference recently and there were two people that were there. Uh, one is Wes McKinney. He is very famously the creator of uh, Pandas. Uh, which is one of the most famous uh, libraries and tools used in data science. There was another guy, Max, who was one of the original creators of Airflow, which is another very famous, uh, very famous tool and uh, library in not just the data science machine learning world, but also in the data engineering world. Um, and something that they had talked about at one point was uh, to, to each other, apparently, um, was what is it like to create a project that just explodes mm-hmm. beyond the original intent? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, what is it like when you you create a library like Pandas, making it faster to do spreadsheets or to do some kind of quantitative analysis, and then it suddenly is used by hundreds of thousands of people in the world over a period of many years? Um, you can only kind of get that with open source. You definitely can't get that love and hate relationship with um, uh, with closed source products. Looking into the future, now that you have this very strong, growing community of people who are using machine learning and AI, and it's becoming a core capacity for basically the entire technological civilization that we're building, what excites you about the potential of open source projects right now? Oh my goodness! I mean, it, it feels like we're in. It feels like we're we're honestly in a renaissance of machine learning. It's it's incredible the kinds of products and and products that people are building and sharing on LinkedIn, on Twitter, for example. Like they're really kind of seeing they're seeing the potential to make what to immediately translate what they think should be in the world, and to then create it in a very very short time period. Now there there are there are also times where where maybe it's not great to have such a low barrier of entry. Uh, you know there are those projects out there, but um, I think overall it is incredibly positive. And I also think too that when you lower the bar of entry for people to engage with new technologies, the advances in data science, machine learning, and um, AI it it is transformational. We're never going back to a pre-ML world, unless unless civilization collapses. But, um, you know, aside from that, we're, we're, we're never going back. Like now that a lot of these technologies are so widely available and they're so widely like talked about, I don't think we're ever going to go back to a world where, for example, someone doesn't have personalization as part of their experience visiting e-commerce site or Someone doesn't have, for example, personalization in um, with their health devices or things like that. So it, it just represents such a transformational shift. But what that also means is that we have to be aware of how to handle that responsibility. That's a that's a big, big part. And I think when we're able to like lower the barrier to people to like get engaged in the conversation to be aware of kind of their rights when it comes to data privacy for example if it is if an artist or designer 
agrees to let their work be used as part of a training data set for a model, for example, are they fully aware of their rights or privileges? So we need to have those like conversations. Are there any specific fields or use cases where you want to focus your incredible MLOps expertise as we're heading forward? So there's a couple different areas. One is I'm very, very passionate about um, healthcare and health. Uh, so for years, I was training as a, as a bodybuilder. Um, so I'm very conscious about that. Also because people in my family, for example, um, and also with, when I was working at Teladoc slash Livongo, was how preventable so much of our current health conditions are. So that to me is like just a personal interest of mine. Like I always love helping startups and companies with figuring out how they can actually use machine learning for, uh, you know, for improving like health outcomes. Makiko's passion point here is the whole reason Harrison AI exists, to use AI to elevate the care clinicians can provide. If you're keen to hear more about how technology is moving the world forward from some of the leading minds in the AI space, check out Harrison's brilliant World Shapers virtual live event series. You can watch the content on demand and you can find the details on harrison.ai slash events. Okay, back to Mikiko. Another area that I am actually very, very passionate about is smart cities. So I, I live in San Francisco. There has been a lot written about it. Some of it, good. A lot of it, not great. I believe so much in the potential of San Francisco as a born and raised San Francisco myself that I would love to be able to use data science and machine learning to like improve the lives, especially of people who, like my family, like, you know, we're middle class. Sometimes that feels a little, a little bit of a struggle. All right. There's two questions that we've been asking all of our guests at the end of our interview. So the first question if you could give any advice to your younger self, maybe back at UCSD or maybe somewhere else, what, you know, in terms of maybe in your career, what advice would you be giving yourself? I wish that when I was younger, I had been a little bit more courageous in following my curiosity. And and I understand where, where my parents were coming from. I understand where uh, a lot of times when you are an immigrant, uh, or you're a child of immigrants, there is this perspective of, of uncertainty in your day-to-day -day life. And so you try to make the what seems to, to be the best solution, the most stable choice for your kids. It comes to career, it comes to finances. So I personally had wished I had been a little bit more courageous earlier on in terms of following my interests because after you know after I graduated from college for example and then I essentially I had to start from scratch and my in terms of my career my grades weren't good enough to go to grad school and they still aren't good enough to go to grad school. Um, I also didn't have a lot of marketable skills. So I had to really kind of craft a career for myself. Now the the benefit of that is because I have I've developed that playbook. I know that, for example, regardless of what happens in the machine learning and AI space, I'll be able to apply those learnings to grow along with the field and I'll remain like relevant, I'll remain hireable, all that great stuff. You know, so that's one thing is there is no bad thing about curiosity. Curiosity should be cultivated, it should be protected. And then I would say the other piece of advice is for people to just, uh, you know, build career capital at the end of the day. 
it's, it's really about the skills you have. It's about how you accomplish things that no one can ever take away from you. It doesn't matter if you have a degree or you don't have a degree. It doesn't matter if you have a specific job, a certain job title or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's whatever is the skills you have, uh, how you're able to solve problems. That is actually everyone's career capital. That's their toolbox. And they should cultivate that as much as possible. All right. We know that we learn more from our failures than our successes. What about your biggest failure? What has it taught you? Oh, my God, my biggest failure. Yeah, it's really funny because like I, when when I tell the story of my career, I, I tell people it's kind of like I went from the pan to the fire into another fire repeatedly. I would say the, the biggest failure, honestly, was graduating college with a 2.6 GPA. But now that I'm many years away from that, uh, I would say the lesson I learned was to just keep moving was the biggest thing. And I also think, too, that in Silicon Valley, we like to say, like, fail fast and break things. But I think there's a difference between recklessly taking on risk, like expanding your reach, try to do something new and hard but also like learn from that, you know? So I think that's what I learned was keep going, just keep learning. And then, you know, there's no such thing as failure in that regard. And it's, you know, my favorite line from my mentor, probably the best thing he ever taught me was have courage and keep moving. Makiko, thank you so much for joining us on Millions. This has been a wonderful conversation. It was so great speaking with you too. Thank you so much for having me. And there we have it, Millions listeners. That was Makiko Baisley sharing some incredibly wise words to bring our final episode to a close. And what an exciting, thought-provoking, and at times sobering rollercoaster of information and inspiration it has been. Thank you, Makiko, Mark, and most importantly, to you for listening. We'll be back in due course for a new season of Millions, But if you want to continue getting your AI technology fix and stay up to date with the latest from the world of medtech, be sure to subscribe and follow Harrison AI on LinkedIn. Bye for now.